Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Well, last week, Jared shared with us about Shalak and the sin of the spies. And then this week, things don't let up. We go right into the portion of Korah and hear of his rebellion. And when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about today, I thought, well, what's this portion really about? You know, Korah's rebellion stands out quite a bit because it's right at the beginning of the portion. Even the, the portion bears its name, his name. Um, but what about the overall theme of the entire portion? And so if we step back from that story and say, what does this look like as a whole? Then the rebellion is one aspect of what God's communicating, but he's, he's communicating something bigger, and it's regarding the, the priesthood for Aaron and his sons. So if we look at, if we just walk through the portion, Korah and others of renown, they question and openly reject Moses and Aaron's leadership. But God affirms that the priesthood belongs to Aaron by swallowing up Korah, Dathan, and Avram, and consuming the 250 who brought censers of fire before the Lord. God commands that the fire pans be used as a covering for the altar, as a sign. And this is in number 1638 after the men had been consumed and the fire pans remained. God says, As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. For they offered them before the Lord, and they became holy. Thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers, which those who were, who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar, to be a reminder to the people of Israel, so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him through Moses. Well, after the earth swallowed up Korah and, his, and uh, Dathan and Avram, then the entire assembly gathered against Moses and Aaron, and God sent a plague against them. But Aaron went out in the midst of the people to intercede, and he burned incense in their midst, and God stopped the plague. After, after this, after that second confirmation of Aaron's greatness, then God commanded each tribe to bring a staff so that God could make his choice plain and evident of who was going to be the high priest, be the priestly family. Aaron's rod brought forth a blossom, sprouted a bud, and almonds ripened on it. Once again, proving God's choice. And then God commanded that that staff be kept as a, for a safekeeping, as a sign to the children of Israel of whom God had chosen. So now he has two witnesses that he has placed before the children of Israel as a reminder to them of who the choice is so that they would not rebel. And then chapter 18 which concludes the portion is entirely about the responsibility of Aaron and his sons as priests. And within chapter 18, there's discussion of the uh, offerings being given to Aaron, 
as or portions of the offerings being given to Aaron as an eternal portion. And then in Numbers 18, 19, the scripture says, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. So the overarching theme of this portion is really God's affirming his choice of Aaron and his descendants to be those who administer before the Lord in the, in the tabernacle and establishing the covenant with them. Now the overall, I think the overall, um, we're definitely going to talk about Aaron's priesthood, but if I were to try to give today's message a title, it would be something along the lines of, of holy vessels, okay? Because holy vessels play an important part in this week's message. So let's start out going through the story of Korah's rebellion, and then we'll work our way through more of the portion. In Numbers 16, verses 1 through 4, now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Avram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with the number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard, he fell on his face. Now, so here Korah is coming to question the authority of Moses and Aaron. And there's a few things that are helpful in understanding what's taking place with Korah. And one is who he is in the family of Levi. He is Moses and Aaron's first cousin. So Korah's father... Korah's uncle is the father of Moses and Aaron. And so within this, there's a question of why were they chosen versus me? Now, Korah, um, in some ways, he's said to have felt as second class from being passed over, both from the aspect of the priesthood and then also even to be the leader of, of his family, of the Kohathites. And the issue wasn't really that he was a second-class citizen. He was actually given great honor. He was given great honor, but he couldn't see it because he was too focused on what he didn't have. And that is what drove him to rise up and rebel against Moses and Aaron. And this is also coming from the standpoint of the sin of the spies has occurred. They know that they're not entering into the promised land, that they're going to wander in the wilderness and die. So there's an aspect of grief that they're going through and processing the loss that they have. And within the grief, sometimes reason doesn't really uh, play a good part. So they rose up against him. And, and now this, this verse here that we read in, in verse 4 said, Moses heard and he fell on his face. I mean, this, this translation says, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. But the Hebrew says, Moses heard and he fell on his face. Now, what stands out to me is, well, why does the scripture need to tell us that Moses heard? Because 
it says that Korah said this to Moses. So of course he's going to hear. But I think what the Torah is trying to communicate is he did more than just hear with his ears. He discerned in his spirit what Korah's true intention was. Because here Korah is coming before him and he's saying, look, all of the assembly are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourself over them? So he's coming at it from a little different angle than what his true desire is. His true desire is the priesthood. But instead he's going to take something that's a little bit more palatable and have that be his approach on how he begins to try to exercise his will. Now, in Numbers 16, 5 through 11, we see Moses uncovering what Korah's true desire was. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show, show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one who, whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have, got, you have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from among the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? So within this passage, we see Moses recognizing, you're not standing against me, you're standing against Aaron. And you're actually despising the high calling that God has given to you because you're too focused on the priesthood that was given to Aaron, and that is what you're seeking. Now, within this, there's a question. Is it wrong for Korah to desire more, to desire to be even closer to God? And on one hand, you'd say, well, when you're acting in rebellion, yes, it's wrong. But if there's an opportunity to draw closer to God, if, the, if you see that there's a way of doing it, then on, the other hand, on, on that other side of things, a desire to be close to God can be a good thing. And so the desire can be good and well-intentioned, but then the way that we walk it out, the way that we carry it out, can reveal the true positioning of our heart. Because... You know, Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all else. We can think our intentions are wonderful and good and scriptural, even as he's presenting here before Moses of everyone's holy, and God dwells among them. But then there can be this sliver that gets in and begins to distort and to break down and disrupt. And so we have to be mindful of that, both in what is the truth of Scripture and what is in our hearts as we walk out our following and seeking the Lord. There's actually a Midrash that talks talk specifically about this. And in the Midrash it says, Moses says to them, those who are rising up against him, among the religions of the world there, there, there are various customs, and they do not all gather in the same house of worship. We, however, have but one God, one Torah, 
one high priest, and one sanctuary. Yet you, 250 men, all desire the high priesthood. I too desire it. Now that's interesting, right? To, to hear that Midrash, of course, is a historical story meant to teach us something, as opposed to say that this was a literal conversation that was had. But within it, what the sages are trying to convey is that even Moses could have desired to have the high priesthood and have that closeness with God. Consider back at the burning bush, God calls him to go and deliver the children of Israel. And Moses is like, no, 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 send someone else, please. And God finally relents and says, okay, I'll send Aaron, your brother, with you, and he'll speak for you. So now here's Moses. He's in the wilderness. He's already brought the children of Israel out. Moses, um, Abraham, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to get these people right eventually. Aaron has already been his spokesman to Pharaoh. All right, Aaron, you're done. You finished your job. The high priest does not have to do a whole lot of talking. I'm good. I've got this. You stand down. I'm going to take care of being the leader and the high priest. But he doesn't do that. Moses goes according to what God's will is and what God's choice is of Aaron being the high priest. And he says, yes, God, I'm going to do your will. Which is part of Moses' character, of being one who is humble and fully submitted to do God's will and speak only what he hears God saying. But what the sages speak of with regard to this Midrash is that even though Moses could have desired this, the difference between Korah and Moses was that Korah acted upon his desire in defiance of God's decree. Whereas Moses yielded his will for God's will to be done. So, we, so one of the things they say on this is that um, even though we may have lofty ambitions, we are only to act on them if that action is in agreement with the will of God. Right? If it's contrary to the will of God, then we lay it down. And that we should, we should desire and yearn for the highest ideals, even those which we are prohibited from actually attaining. That's an interesting thought, right? Because you're not allowed to attain it, but there's a desire for the closeness that the priesthood has. Well, God actually takes that into consideration in number six when he gives the laws of the Nazarite vow. He says, you desire to come close to, to me to a greater de degree? Well, I'm providing a way of you having a holiness, a set-apartness likened unto the priests if you want to set yourself apart that way, and you can do it through the Nazarite vow. So it's... In this case, it's almost as though God sees the, the pure and the true desire, and he says, I'll give you an avenue for that. You still can't be a part of Aaron and his sons unless you were born into that family line. You can't have that holiness, but I'm going to give you a holiness that you can partake of, that you can come into. And I've already called you as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, called you into the family of God, and so given you a high and lofty calling. Take hold of that. Cherish it and walk forward in it. You are a holy vessel. You don't need to come and approach as Korah is doing and saying, I need, to be, I need to exalt myself to a higher station to be a holier vessel than what I have been given. Because that's ultimately what Korah is doing, is trying to exalt himself. Now, when I, when I 
Okay, so within this, we talked about two things that were going on. Korah was coming and saying that all the people are holy, and all of them have God's presence among them. He actually uses the word betocham, okay, which is a specific word that ties back to uh, Exodus 25.8. And in Exodus 25.8, the scripture says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, that I may dwell betocham. That's, that can be in their midst and it can be within them. It's both are a component. And then he's taking that verse and he's also taking Exodus 19.6 where God says, I will make you unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's making the people holy to him. And then saying, if you're holy and my presence is in you, then you are a holy vessel. So that's what Korah is using. But then he also desires the priesthood of, of his own. Okay? And the aspect of holy vessels, you know, I'm mentioning this in the, in the case of him saying that all the people are holy. The holy vessels have a place and a purpose. The holy vessels in the tabernacle are part of the worship service. And because they are set apart to God, they are, they are holy, they are sanctified, and no one except the priests are allowed to look on them. In fact, looking upon them and not being a priest can bring death. If we looked in Numbers 4, actually I tell you, before we go to number, Numbers 4, Korah and his followers, in what they're doing, trying to get the priesthood and saying that all the people are holy and likening themselves to holy vessels, are essentially making the claim that they are likened unto the Mishkan. They're likened unto God's holy temple. And in it, there's somewhat a rejection of that, of the structure that God has put in place. And it may sound a little strange to make this claim, but within the scriptures, when we look here in just a moment, we're going to see that God is making the same association with Korah, Dathan, and Avram making themselves out as a tabernacle in and of themselves. There's actually a Midrash that speaks within this regard. The Midrash is actually, uh, it says that when Korah and his followers came to confront Moses and Aaron, they came dressed in robes that were completely of techelet, which is the blue thread that is used in the tzitzit, and it's also a, a, a garment of the high priest and woven into the high priest garments in other places as well. It's also woven into the uh, coverings of the tabernacle. They say that they came dressed in garments fully of techelet, of this blue. And you may look at that and say, well, that sounds a little fanciful. That may not have happened, right? Well, that's okay. It may not have happened. But the, the sages were bringing this up for the purpose of highlighting something that was being that was woven into the scriptures in that they're tying it back to what happens to the holy vessels when it comes time for the vessels to move from one place to another when the children of Israel are going to move their camp and the tabernacle has to be taken down if we were to look at numbers 4 numbers 4 gives instructions to the Kohathites and the other Levites 
on what is to take place when the tabernacle moves. I'm just going to give a little summary of it here before we go to Numbers 14 or 4:17. But at the beginning of Numbers 4, in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the, of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi. So this is Korach's family. According to their families, according to their father's households, from 30 years of age and up until 50 years of age, everyone who comes to the legion to perform work in the tent of meeting. This is the work of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy. When the camp is to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come and take down the partition curtain. And they go on and they begin to say, they take down the curtain, they take the various instruments like the menorah, the table of showbread, the table of incense, and they cover them with various coverings, including a garment that is completely of tehillet, is one of the wrappings that goes over every one of these vessels. And we read multiple, I mean, for a while the scripture is going on just speaking of what Aaron and his sons do. So in verse 4, it says, This is the work of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy. And then it spends the next 10, 12 verses talking only about what Aaron and his sons do. And then when it finishes saying what Aaron and his sons do, it then says that um, the children of Kohath will come in and carry the covered items because they can't see them. This is another aspect of it seems as though Kohath is getting a bit a short end of the stick. Wouldn't it be better if they could come in, wrap up all the holy vessels, and then carry them, as opposed to just carry them and not ever really be able to behold them? So that's an, another area of tension. In verse 15 of, of chapter 4, it says, Aaron and his sons shall finish covering the holy and all the holy utensils when the camp journeys, and then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry, so that they not touch the sanctuary and die. These are the burdens of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting. Okay, so then in verse 17, here of chapter 4, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. Okay. Verse 20 has something that's key to understanding what's going on with the story of Korah. But you can't see it when you read here in this in this translation. It says, They shall not go in to look, they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. The only problem is that's not what it says in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, this translation gives a little bit different, a little bit better. Translation says, They shall not go in to watch while the holy things are being covered, lest they die. So yes, they, they shouldn't look at it lest they die. But this word for covered is not the normal word for cover. It's they shall not go in to watch while the holy things are swallowed, lest they die. 
So here in, in Numbers 4, the scripture is saying all the holy vessels, when they're being covered with these garments of techelet, they're being swallowed and covered up so that then the Kohathites can come and carry them. That word swallowed is not a common word used in the scripture. So it's interesting to find that this word swallowed is exactly what is used in speaking of what happened to Korah and his followers when, followers when the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and they went alive down to the pit. So God was making a connection here to saying, look, the holy vessels are wrapped into helot and then they are swallowed up. You, Korah, have said that you are a holy vessel. If you're a holy vessel, then you are going to be swallowed up by the earth. And so that's why the sages said, you know what, they came dressed into helot because that's what happens to think to the holy vessels. They're wrapped into helot and swallowed up. Such were Korah, Dathan, and Avaram. Now, if you want to take it one step further, right, to what's happening here, when God's getting ready to swallow them up in Numbers 16, in Numbers 16, verse 24, he says, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Avaram. He doesn't say get away from their tents. doesn't say get away from their houses. He says get away from the Mishkan of Korah, Dathan, and Avram. He doesn't even say get away from the Mishkans. He doesn't even say the plural. He says the Mishkan. They have called themselves a Mishkan, setting aside my Mishkan. They've called themselves holy vessels, setting aside my holy vessels. And they have rebelled against the one I have chosen to be the high priest and his sons to be priests with him. So he's saying this is a rebellious crew. This rebellious crew must be swallowed up such that the congregation does not look upon them and they themselves also die. Okay, so think on that just for a moment. God's protecting the Kohathites from looking upon the holy things because if they looked upon the holy things, they would die. So he graciously covers up the holy vessels for them so then they can come and carry and do their duty unto him without dying. But now Korah, Dathan, and Avram and 250 other esteemed leaders have risen up in rebellion, calling themselves holy vessels. But yet, if the congregation continues to look on that rebellion... That will bring death to all of the nation. So God in His grace opens up the earth and covers over the ones who proclaim themselves as the holy vessels so that the congregation would not die. It's a fascinating parallel. But that, that too, even God's grace for the assembly to not take them all out was at the intercession of Moses. You'll see repeatedly in this portion Moses falling on his face before God and interceding for the people and God hearing and giving them a way to life. And in this case, he, he told the, all the people to get up and to go away from the Mishkan of Korah. 
And so, what's, again, what's really happening here, Korah has rejected Moses and Aaron using a very scriptural and righteous-sounding reason for why he could do it. Saying, look, all the people are holy. Everyone has God in their midst. But he was really rebelling against God's authority first and foremost. And in doing so, he was rebelling against what God had, who God had established as the authority and who God had established as the high priest. He was rejecting, okay, so if you think about Moses, um, sometimes you, when referring to the Torah, you would say Moses, because Moses represents God's Torah, okay? And then, uh, in a way, the priesthood represents the temple. So within Dathan's, I mean, uh, Korah's rebellion, he's rejecting the authority of Moses and the Torah. He's rejecting the priesthood of Aaron and the, and the tabernacle or the temple service. All along the lines of saying, we're the temple, not what God has established. Now, that probably sounds familiar. And I'm not trying to do a large rebuke here or anything to uh, the body of believers. But there are many within the church, uh, Hebrew roots, messianic movement, all across the board who say, look, there's no need for a temple because we are the temple of God. We're the body. We have God's spirit dwelling in us. There's no need for the temple. And the Levitical service has been done away completely. The line of Aaron done away with, and they've got various reasons for why they believe it. And really, if we look at some of the New Testament scriptures, we have a really good reason for, for saying this, because we are holy vessels unto God. We have His Spirit within us. And the scriptures say that we are a temple unto the Lord. In fact, let's look at a couple of them in 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And then also in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And then also Peter says something similar in 1 Peter 2, 5. He said, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua our Messiah. It is true that we are a temple unto God, both individually and corporately. That He has set us apart, that He has placed His Spirit within us, that He dwells among us. And that is a wonderful and beautiful thing. But it doesn't come into conflict with the reality of a Levitical priesthood or a temple service. In fact, these scriptures that were written in 1 Corinthians by Paul and in First Peter by Peter were written during the time when the temple was still standing and when the temple service was still in place. It hadn't gone away and there was no conflict between the idea of the priesthood of believers and the Levitical priesthood. But yet we have that conflict today 
Well, because there's been a lot of time that's gone by, and there's been a lot of time taking the New Testament scriptures and coming up with ideas without taking into account the entirety of the foundation upon which the New Testament scriptures were written. So we're going to look, um, we're going to look into this aspect of the priesthood and how it has not changed, even though there is a priesthood of believers. You know, when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about today, and this, this kept coming to my mind about speaking about this, and I kept being like, nope, I really don't want to talk about it. I'd like to talk about something else. And I kept trying over and over and over again. I was like, I could, I could talk about the importance of having good neighbors and not being influenced by bad thoughts. I could talk about, and I kept going through all these things, but the Lord just kept bringing me back to this. So I was like, man, I could be like Jonah and just run the other way. But no, let's not do that. And so when and I was thinking about this, we're going to talk about things that could go against some long-held beliefs, that could ruffle feathers. It's not my intention to do that. It's, my intention is to share the picture of what is revealed in the Torah and the prophets and how that then fits into our understanding of, say, the book of Hebrews, which is a very critical one. And, and within this, too, um, if we have wrong understanding, that is, that is far better than to have wrong actions. Okay, so what I, want to, what I want to say on this is that we could have all knowledge and have everything right about everything written in Scripture, but if we don't take it and apply it from a place of love and service to God and humility, love towards Him and love towards our neighbor, then your knowledge isn't worth a whole lot. Okay, so you can study all day long, but if you don't walk out the love of God, then you're in a world of hurt. So when I talk about errors in the church or in the Messianic congregations or the Hebrew roots, there are so many who love the Lord with a pure heart and seek to serve Him and do a fantastic job despite the fact they're not perfect. Who would have known you don't have to be perfect to love God and serve Him? You know, but what we do is we do want to know what the truth is. And so we do study the scriptures and we share what we find in it such that we can make correction where correction is needed so that we can walk even better. Okay, but we do it in love. We do it in grace. So the church may have made mistakes. I've made mistakes, but we push forward for the greater things. Right. And so, so that's what we're going to walk through a little bit today is Let's learn a little bit more about some of these foundations of why I say the priesthood has not changed. Even though we walk in a new covenant through Yeshua, our Messiah, even though we are a temple of the living God individually and collectively, there are still plans and purposes that God has for a physical temple and the service of the Levitical priesthood in that temple service as part of the restoration of all things that Yeshua will complete. Okay? 
So starting out with the um, let's let's look at uh, let's look at numbers eighteen seven through eight. I may have that in here. I may not. Okay. How about Numbers 18, 19? That's an easier one to find. Good. Thank you. Well, Numbers 18, 7 through 8 was speaking about anyone who is not of Aaron's line who approaches will die. So God's saying this is the only way to approach. In Numbers 18, 19, which actually we read earlier, but I want to go back to it again because... In this, God says, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. So God calls his covenant with Aaron and his descendants a covenant of salt that is perpetual. There's another, okay, a covenant of salt is not something that is commonly spoke of in the scriptures. But it is spoken of in Second Chronicles 13.5. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? So the covenant with Aaron and the covenant of David are both covenants of salt. And, and uh, two weeks from now we're going to read in Numbers 25 about Phineas and how he was given a covenant of, covenant of peace and eternal priesthood. Here in Numbers 25, uh, 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So God has given to Aaron and his sons a covenant of salt with the priesthood. He's given to Phinehas, who is a son of Aaron, and to his sons an eternal covenant of peace to serve as priests unto God. Now, most of the time, there's no problem with the idea of David having a covenant with God that he would never lack a man to sit on the throne of David right, as king over Israel. Most people, we have no problem with that because we know that Yeshua is the son of David who sits on the throne as the king of Israel. He does it now spiritually, and he will in his coming reign. Okay? But where we often falter is the idea that Aaron and his sons have an eternal priesthood of the same order. Not of the same order like in uh, the Levitical order versus Melchizedek order, but like in the aspect of a covenant of salt and a perpetual covenant given to him. And there's a couple of scriptures here that I want to look at that further the idea. So God's already said multiple times in Numbers 18 that he was giving this the service of the Levites and the servants of the children of Aaron as priests, as eternal portions. And then in Jeremiah, so we get confirmation of this idea in Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. 
Okay. The first one I want to go to is Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 22. And in fact, in all of these that I'm going to share from Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, they all come in the context of the messianic reign. They're all speaking of the time when the son of David who sits on the throne, who is the Messiah, is ruling and reigning. Jeremiah 33, 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Sorry. The, um, and then he says, continuing in verse 19, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the, with the Levitical priests my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Here's both covenants of salt presented in Jeremiah with God saying, my covenants with, Jer with Aaron and with David are stronger than my covenant with day and night. If you still see day and night happening, then my covenant with David and my covenant with Aaron still stand. Now, some of the objections today to this are like, well, there's no temple. There's no sacrifices being made. And this scripture says, they'll never lack a man to offer sacrifices to me forever. They clearly aren't offering them. So this scripture can't be taken literally. But it can be taken literally because this scripture was written at the time of the exile when the temple was destroyed. There was no one offering sacrifices. There was no one sitting on the throne of David. But yet the script, this same scripture said, David will not lack a man to sit on the throne. Did the exile in Babylon invalidate God's covenants? Are we really to believe that because Nebuchadnezzar had a strong army that he could invalidate God's covenant promises? I don't think so. So this was written in exile, but knowing that the temple would be rebuilt and that this would all resume. And it did. And then the temple sacrifices were shut off again during the days of the Syrian invasion, I mean, of the, of the Greek invasion, where, they, uh, where the morning and evening sacrifices were cut off in the days of the Maccabees. But yet, it was reestablished. Okay? There's others who say, well, the high priest standing before Yeshua tore his robes. And, and in doing that, they forfeited the priesthood. I don't think so. I think God's covenant is stronger than a cloth. Okay? The failures of man do not invalidate God's covenants. Okay? But there's all kinds of reasonings we can put together to try to say, no, no, Jeremiah's wrong. Isaiah's wrong. Ezekiel's wrong. Moses was wrong. 
But it's because we don't have the foundation of those scriptures from which we're beginning to interpret Hebrews. If we take Hebrews and try to make the scripture fit into how we interpret Hebrews, we're going about it the wrong way. We start with the foundation of scripture and then we seek to understand Hebrews. And Hebrews must fit into the foundation of scripture. Otherwise, it's not scripture. But it is scripture. Okay. What I'm saying is the error is in the interpretation, not in the writings of the book. Okay, so then, now think about this. Again, the church, many in the Messianic movement, many in the Hebrews movement, say that the Levitical priesthood is, is done. It's, it's not needed anymore. Not going to happen. We just read here that God says, you're not going to break that covenant until day and night pass away. The very next verses that follow after this where he said, So I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priest who ministered to me. The verse carries forward here in verse 23. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two families that he chose? So what's happening? People are looking at the exile and saying, Look, God has rejected David and Aaron. Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. So all those who are looking on are now saying that the people of Israel are done away with. They're not a nation. David's gone. Aaron's gone. But God's answer to that, to those who say that those are done away with, Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. Now, one other objection that I've heard in this is that right there in that verse he says, he doesn't say Aaron. He said, offspring of Jacob and David my servant. But the rebuke God is giving in verse 24 is that they said that he had rejected the two clans. Aaron is included in the statement implicitly. God's saying to those who say those that Aaron and David and their service are done away with, God says, nope, I will restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. And he did, and he has done it again and again, and he will do it again. Okay? Now, Isaiah 66, verse 20 through 21. This is, again, speaking of the ingathering of the exiles at the end of this age. Okay, coming into the Messianic era. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries. Those are camels. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. So he's saying, of those who are exiled, there are priests and Levites, and I will bring them back into my service. Okay. And then we're not going to go into great detail in Exodus 40 through 46, but it is... It's really packed with a lot of information about the third temple 
about the temple that stands during the Messianic era. Now, many times within the, uh, the viewpoint that the temple isn't needed anymore and that this is all done away with, Ezekiel 40 through 46 is viewed as not being literal, but being uh, metaphor and you know, to be interpreted spiritually as opposed to physically. Well, I don't go there. Uh, I don't fall into alignment with that, with that viewpoint. Um, here in Ezekiel 40, there is great detail about what takes place with the reestablishment of the temple, its measurements, the way in which it's inaugurated, which is a complete parallel of how, it is of how the Mishkan was inaugurated in the wilderness and how the temple was inaugurated in Jerusalem. It goes through and establishes who specifically will be allowed to serve in this temple. And I'll, I'll read a few of these verses. They're not gonna, going to be on the screen. Right, yeah, they're not going to be on the screen. Ezekiel 40, verse 38. Oh, no, I'm not going to read all that. That's too long. Okay. How about 42, 13 to 14? We're kind of running short on time. I don't want to, I don't want to go too long here. Ezekiel 42, 13 to 14. Then he said to me, The north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separate area, they are the holy chambers where the priests who are near to the Lord shall eat the most holy things. There they shall lay the most holy things, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, for the place is holy. And it speaks about the service of the priests in here. Now, in chapter 43, there is a vision of the glory of God coming and filling the temple. And the glory of the Lord fills the temple coming from the east. In Ezekiel 43, 18, the scripture says, He said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, the Lord God, these are the statutes for the altar on the day it is built, to offer burnt offerings on it and to sprinkle blood on it. And you shall give to the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord, a young bull for a sin offering. And then he goes through and he lists all of the offerings that are made, which are a parallel but a not exact repli replication of how the Mishkan was inaugurated in the wilderness. Okay. So he's talking about the inauguration of this temple through the Levitical offerings that are being made. And again, this is after the time of the glory of the Lord filling the temple. Now, when Ezekiel was written, it was in the exile of Babylon. The temple was rebuilt, right? The second temple, which existed in the days of Yeshua, it was rebuilt, but the glory of God did not fill that temple as it had filled it in the first temple. So if Ezekiel's talking about the glory of God filling another temple, it's about a temple that does not yet exist at the time that he is writing. The only other one that's existed did not have God's glory in it, but he's speaking of one that will. So we know this is the third temple. All right, so we continue on, and in chapter 44, there's specific instructions given on who God is going to allow to serve as his ministers. 
right back in, but we read in Numbers, as God said, the only people who are from Aaron and his descendants will be able to serve in the holy, in the holy place with the holy vessels. And the Levites, they will serve around the tabernacle and in other aspects of service, but not with the holy things. In Ezekiel 44, 9, thus says the Lord God, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. That's interesting, right? Because God's saying here in Ezekiel that it's still going to be, it's not going to be, the temple's not going to be open to everybody. Even though those who are foreigners have been grafted into the nation of Israel, have been made holy, have been, have God's spirit within them, they're not going to be the ones serving in this sanctuary. He says, the Levites, here continuing in verse 10, but the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, they shall bear their punishment for their iniquity. In verse 11, he says, they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter burnt offerings and sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and becoming a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn against them, declares the Lord, that they shall bear their punishment and their iniquity, and they shall not come near to me to serve me as a priest. So what's happening is he's saying that the, the people who were of Levi, Levi, who were priests, who went astray and rebelled against God, they will not be reinstated to their priesthood, but they will still serve as a regular Levite. Okay? So in verse 14, he says, I'll appoint them to keep charge. In verse 15, he says, the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who is a, a descendant of Aaron, who kept my charge of the sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray, shall come near to me to minister to me. And they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to me, to my table, to minister to me and keep my charge. Okay, so he's making it clear of who's going to be in there serving. And it's still the line of Aaron because that was the covenant promise and the family that was chosen. In verse 23 and 24, he says that they're going to teach people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. And in a dispute, they shall take their stand to judge. They shall judge it according to my ordinances. They shall also keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed feasts and sanctify my Sabbaths. So here it is. He's like, my word is still going forth even in this day because the Torah that God gave is for this age and it endures through the entirety of this age until the new heavens and the earth are established. Okay. Um, I'm going to move on from there. Uh, so these are, we, we've seen support in Numbers, we've seen support in Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all saying that in this temple that is to come in the Messianic era, the Levitical priesthood will continue, it will still stand. And it's actually not in opposition to what God is working out through Yeshua and the salvation that he brings through us because this is, this is the thing that we're going to have to um, only touch on briefly. Because Yeshua's priesthood is of a different order 
than the line of Aaron. Yeshua's priesthood is along the order of Melchizedek, not according to the Levitical priesthood. The scripture says, I've made you a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews agrees with this. The writer of Hebrews goes through great lengths to make it clear the superiority of Yeshua, of his priesthood, of his sacrifice, of his being in the heavenly realm, not the earthly realm, the earthly realm being a shadow of the glory of the heavenly one, where the things that are offered on the earth aren't good enough for the things in the heaven. Only that which was offered by Yeshua is worthy to be offered in the heavens. And in Hebrews 8, verse 4, we're going to read a few verses from Hebrews, not a lot. But in Hebrews 8, I'm actually not going to start in 4. I'm going to start in verse 1. He has gone through all kinds of descriptions about the Melchizedek priesthood, about Yeshua's priesthood being superior. And now coming into chapter 8, he says, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest, being Yeshua, also have something to offer. So he's saying... His whole point that he's been making is that Yeshua sits at the high priest in the heavenly tabernacle that God pitched, which is so much better than the earthly tabernacle that Moses and Aaron pitched. And that Yeshua, being the high priest in this heavenly one, is offering something as the high priest. But then he goes on to distinguish between the heavenly and the earthly. In verse 4 he says, Now if he, being Yeshua, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the Torah. Notice two things. He says, Yeshua is not able to be a priest on the earth because he is not of the descent of Aaron. He cannot serve in the Levitical priesthood. And then he says, there are those offering gifts according to the Torah. The temple is still standing, and the writer of Hebrews does not have a problem with the Levitical priesthood offering sacrifices, nor did the apostles, or Paul, being one of the apostles, have any problem with it, but they themselves offered sacrifices in the temple after the death and resurrection of Yeshua. The only people who have problems with it are those who are, are removed by a thousand, you know, by hundreds of years from it. But when you talk about the people who were alive in the time, they didn't have a problem with these two priesthoods because they knew these two priesthoods did not conflict with one another. The Levitical priesthood did not come about and do away with the Melchizedek. The Melchizedek didn't come about and do away with the Levitical. They are, par they are parallel, non-intersecting priesthoods both with a specific purpose. The order of Melchizedek being from before time, it's eternal, okay? 
the Levitical priesthood had a creation spot in time and it has an end time, but that end time is not yet. Okay? And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He says, yes, it is fading away. It is going away, but it has not gone away. Whereas the priesthood of Yeshua will know no end. It will continue on. It is greater. It does things that the Levitical priesthood could never do. The Levitical priesthood could never get you into everlasting life with God. But Yeshua, the perfect sacrifice through His blood, can take you into everlasting life with God, seated with Him in heavenly places. He exalted you from death to life, right? And made you a holy vessel. The Levitical priesthood could not do that. But Yeshua could. So he's talking about this in saying that Yeshua cannot be a priest on the earth, but yet he is the priest in the heavens. And that actually aligns with what he said in the previous chapter in Hebrews 7. Okay, I'm, I'm going to hit on this because this is a great stumbling block. Okay, I'm going to start in, in Hebrews 7.11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the Torah... What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? I kind of actually just explained that. He says, For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. Okay, this is something that often causes a stumbling block because you said, look, look, he just said the law was changed because it needed to be changed. The only problem is you can't change the law. Not one jot or tittle will fall away until all is accomplished. The Torah was given for this age. The, the Greek word for changed here is not transformed. It's translated. It's moved from one location to another. The expression that he is giving here is that when you move from the heavenly jurisdiction to the earthly jurisdiction... There are different laws in the earthly jurisdiction than there are in the heavenly jurisdiction. Okay, this, this, is the, this is what he's trying to explain. There are different laws concerning who can reign or who can serve as high priest in the heavenly tabernacle than the laws of who can serve in the earthly one. In jurisdiction, there must be different laws to govern that jurisdiction, and that's what we have here, and he's trying to explain it. And he says in verse 13, For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, earthly requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. He's talking about Yeshua the or, in the order of Melchizedek with a priesthood that is greater, that is heavenly, that is everlasting. For it is witnessed of him thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is the setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. Ah, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Yes, 
the, the commandment through the Torah, the offerings uh, through the Levitical priesthood, they, they did not make things perfect. So we can see them relative to the work of Yeshua as being, of being weaker, not effective for what Yeshua was going to accomplish. But that didn't invalidate the glory and the purpose of what the Levitical priesthood was given. And so, well, I need to wrap up. Um, within all of this, we read about the coming branch, and you'll have to look into this on your own. The branch of David that sprouts and comes up, Isaiah 11, and even we read a little bit about the branch of David being established when we were reading it, I think it was in Isaiah. But, or maybe it, was, maybe it may have been the Jeremiah 33 passage. There's so many parallels between this rod that budded and brought life to give testimony that Aaron was the priest. Because that staff was dead. But yet, from that dead staff, life came forth. It sprouted. It had a bud. And it brought forth ripened almonds. That's a picture of the, not only the resurrection, but also the fruitful life that God gives to His people through Yeshua when His people abide in Him. Korah sought to go out and exalt himself, calling himself a holy vessel, and his end was destruction. Who is it that lifts you up? It's God has lifted you up out of death into life, attached you to Yeshua, the Messiah, and the life that he lives. And from that abiding in him, you bring forth fruit in accordance with the nature of your Messiah. You've been given a high calling. Oftentimes there, there are those who are grafted into Israel who see themselves as second class. They're like, well, if I'm not Jewish, then I'm less. Well, this whole thing about identity has been an issue throughout time. What about the Israelites who weren't Levites? What about the Levites who weren't priests? It wasn't that they were less. No, they were highly treasured and valued and given a purpose and a calling by God and a calling to draw near and opportunities to draw near to whatever degree you could do according to God's will and what He had laid out. But His love and His purpose and importance of all is something that we need to take hold of and not get so distracted by what we don't have that we miss out on the beauty of what we have been given, the invitation that we've been given and so when we look at this, we say, we can say, who is it who lifts you up? Is it you looking to exalt yourself as Korah did? Or is it you saying, God has exalted me with Yeshua and placed me with him in heavenly places to abide in him, to live and to go out and do his will? It's a beautiful picture. And then uh, just before service began, uh, Someone brought me a scripture. It was 2 Timothy 1.6. And I was like, I feel like this just fits with this aspect of who we are as holy vessels, anointed by God, filled with His Spirit, made one body. He, in 2 Timothy 1.6, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into the flame 
the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. God's placed a gift within you. And it's up to you to say, yes, Lord, that gift is valuable. I want to fan that flame. I want it to be a raging fire within me as you well up and well up within and overflow. I don't want to try to take hold of the things that aren't mine, but I can still desire a closeness with you that is likened unto the priest, that is likened unto the greatest holiness you offer. And you can do it through the power of the Spirit living within you. So let's pray. Father, we bless your name and we thank you. We thank you that you have made us holy vessels unto you. Lord, that your Spirit dwells within us and that you move in our midst. Thank you for the calling that you've given to us. Help us, Lord, to accept it, to walk in it, Lord. And as we do, help us to embrace the various distinct and diverse callings that you placed within your body. Recognizing who you've chosen and blessing them rather than rebelling against them. Help us, Lord, to walk as one. And help us, Lord, to to remain abiding in Yeshua, our Messiah. And Lord, give us greater understanding, increased revelation in your word. And may it flow through us, Lord, that we wouldn't just know your word, but that we would live it. We bless you and we thank you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.